Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and thank you for joining me today. I hope you've had a great day. And if you're in the car heading home, how nice it is to um, be tuning into Faith Radio. And Because today we're going to talk with Marshall Siegel. He's a writer and managing editor at DesiringGod.org. I always encourage you to go to DesiringGod.org. There's so much amazing content there. But today we're going to talk about the spiritual dangers of isolation. That's our topic today. Marshall, welcome. It's so good to be back. Thank I, you. I so appreciate the show and uh, any chance I get to come talk about Jesus with Amen. you guys. Amen. So Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's one of those verses at least for me, that as you're reading through your Bible day after day, year after year, I'd read the verse a number of times, but it just lodged itself in my mind a couple of years ago. And I wonder if it does for you. So whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. We could talk about that. But this is the the phrase that really arrested me. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So there's something about isolation that's not just spiritually dangerous, which, again, we could talk about, but it breaks out against sound judgment. It's foolish. Wow. And the reason that lodges itself for me is because I just see so many people, and I, I minister mostly among 20 and 20-something, 30-something um, students, college students, post-college, young marrieds, uh, with, eventually with young children, and I see so many isolated people. Which is really strange because you think about our time and you'd think we'd be the most connected people (laughs) in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that that's not the case and that the technology that we have, which can facilitate some really – I mean that's what happened right now. We're we're talking and other people are benefiting hopefully from the word of God and from our conversation. There's some amazing technology happening right now. But I think the technology in a lot of cases can mask a real deep sense of loneliness a lot of people have. So if I think a lot of people that I know – are lonely slash isolated. And this says that kind of isolation breaks out against all sound judgment. I want to know, what does that mean? Why? Mm -hmm. How does that work? Yeah, I saw a couple of people eating Saturday night, and they were both at the table looking at their phones. And I I noticed that when I looked up from my phone. Yeah. (laughs) And you didn't have to finish that sentence. Everyone on this... (laughs) Everyone listening right now knew how to finish that sentence. I saw two people sitting at a table, and they both were, what, looking at their phones? Looking at their phones, yeah. And mm-hmm. and their minds probably, again, quote-unquote, connecting with someone out there, social media, reading something online. It, it has the illusion of connectivity, but I think we're seeing more and more that People are more isolated than ever, mm-hmm. or at least as isolated as ever, mm-hmm. not more. Marshall Siegel is my guest over from over at DesiringGod.org. Marshall, you say in your article, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy. 
That's a loaded statement. Yeah, so actually that's a quote from Sherry Turkle. Um, her book is called Alone Together. She's not a believer, but the book is really powerful. It's a uh, She's a sociologist looking at the effects of technology, and she talks in that section about how, um, again, how technologically we're connected, but that the connection is it's an illusion. It's not a real meaningful connection. She, she points specifically to we'd rather text than talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think about that. Trying to connect with someone, and our visceral thing is, I'd rather text that person than actually talk to them. And so, yeah, well, why is that? A lot, a lot of people relate to that and say, yeah, that's the case. I would rather someone text me than just call me out of the blue. And why is that the case? And I think it's because the the live interaction, whether over the phone and then especially face to face, is way more vulnerable. You, you lose control. Whereas text, I can think for a long time about how I'm going to respond. I can I can write it and rewrite it. I can send it whenever I want. There's all these control mechanisms, but the more that you control and the more artificial it becomes, the less meaningful the connection is. And you can receive it in isolation too. Right, exactly. I mean, if I call you and say, Marshall, can I borrow 10 bucks? I'm going to get an instant response. You might roll your eyes going, here he is asking for money again. But if I text it to you, you go, now you can receive it in isolation. Right. And my response is not going to be as indicative. (laughs) Yeah. So my laugh tells you. (laughs) Sure. Um, yeah, we're just not giving ourselves to each other right. over text message the way that we do on a phone call. And we're not giving each other on a phone call like we can all five sentences in person. So, yeah, that's what I'm probing in this article is what is the nature of, of this isolation that's so pervasive and why is it dangerous? I love Proverbs 18.2. It's one of my favorite verses. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. That's a good verse for you to have as your favorite one, <laughs> your line of work. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that helps us understand what kind of isolation this is talking about. I don't think it just means someone that's locked away in a room, but someone who's unwilling to hear what other people think. So it's it's a kind of pride that says, I just want other people to hear what I think. I don't I don't want to hear what other people think. And so a lot of people listening might think, well, I'm not I'm not going around dishing out my thoughts and opinions on things, so this must not be me. And I think, no. I think the better question is, who's meaningfully speaking into your life right now? Who do you let speak into your life? And not and just and and far beyond just the the normal, social, shallow, small talk, but really like who's engaging the aspects of your life where they're they're challenging you, they're exhorting you, they're correcting you. The more people I meet today, the the fewer and fewer I feel have those kinds of meaningful connections. They they know of, are acquainted with way more people Mm -hmm. online, but they don't have the kind of meaningful life-on-life, face-to-face relationships that the Bible describes. Who's got your attention? Who can speak truth into your life? Who can contradict your will and at least get you to think, right? Exactly. And it touches a thread in Proverbs. So you get Proverbs um, 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. (laughs) So, I mean, that's... Be not wise in your own eyes, but turn away from evil. And then Proverbs fourteen twelve. there's a way that seems right to a man. So there's a way that seems right to me, mm-hmm. Marshall, but its end is the way of death. So be not wise in your own eyes, turn away from evil. There's a way that seems right in your eyes, but it's, its way actually ends in death. So there's people listening right now who have, like, this is how what I'm going to do, the decision I'm going to make, this is the way that I'm going to live, and in their minds, it's this is the right thing to do. This is wise. 
But God's warning us through Proverbs, but its way ends in death. And the way that we discover that where that path leads is through the eyes of meaningful relationships, through the eyes of a friend who's willing to look and say, you know, I think you're wrong about that. Marshall Siegel is my guest, and I'm going to read from his article, which is up at DesiringGod.org. The proud man, we learn, breaks out against all judgment because he invites destruction on himself. Arrogance makes his isolation dangerous. I don't spend more time with other people because I don't need other people because I know better than other people. This pride distinguishes isolation from the virtues of solitude, which God encourages again and again. Powerful, powerful comment. Yeah, I doubt very many people on listening again will admit to thinking that way. That I don't spend more time with other people because I don't need other people because I know better than other people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But our lifestyles tell the truth. Do we spend time with other people to, to gain wisdom and perspective from other people or not? If we don't, then we're functionally saying, I don't need that. I need food, so I eat. I need sleep, so I sleep. Whatever, whatever other things you do, you do in, in essence because you think you need them. If we don't spend time asking for counsel, if we don't sp- spend time seeking out encouragement, seeking out correction, then we're saying I don't need that kind of meaningful community. And I think Hebrews 3 is, is probably are some of the best verses to put on that. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. Not just every now, like once a month, I'm going to grab <laughs> coffee and get an exhortation. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I think it's a New Testament passage teaching the same reality. And he's saying sin is so deceitful that if you don't have someone speaking into your life and confronting the desires that you have that are sinful and would lead you astray, sin will harden you. It'll harden you and lead you to fall away from the living God. So, yeah, that's uh, understanding how how deceitful pride can be and how easily we can be convinced that, that we know what's best for us and we don't need to have other people's perspective can lead us into this kind of isolation that I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Marshall, what draws us into the spiritual shadows of isolation? Yeah, so I think, again, that Hebrews 3 gets to it in terms of um, what makes sin deceitful. How does Satan make sin appealing? And it's, it, He appeals to our desires, mm. I think. So, um, so I think what causes us to isolate ourselves is... We think we know what's best for us. We don't really deep down want to hear someone else challenge what we think what's best for us because that might force us to let go of what we think is best for us. And so we protect ourselves and our vision for ourselves and hide from, from community. So – and then I think there's a lot of other things like convenience. So apart from just – I think at the baseline, why we avoid it is because Satan has convinced us, has lured us away through sinful desire. And that could be any number of desires that that either overtly or quietly draw us away from community. But then also, I just think it takes work. Relationships like I'm describing are not normal and they're not easy and, they're, and they consistently require intentionality and investment that most people just don't, aren't willing to give the time and energy to cultivate. 
So I feel this in my in my own life. I I have to to deliberately set aside time to pursue this kind of friendship, this kind of conversation that draws me out of myself, draws me out of my blindnesses, my 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 weaknesses, my blind spots, and draws me into the light where I can be changed and refined and redirected in the ways that God wants to. Mm-hmm. Are we using crutches right now coming out of COVID? It's Absolutely. harder and harder to do. I mean, that's honestly partly why I want to talk about this today is because I think one of, you know, God was teaching us 10,000 things through the last couple of years, but one of them was just how desperately we need the body of Christ and how much we need one another yeah. to um, to understand God, to see God, to understand ourselves, and to walk faithfully for him. Yeah. Let's take a little break. We'll come back more with Marshall Siegel. He's written a, a piece called Me, Myself, and Lies, The Spiritual Dangers of Isolation. You can go find that article at DesiringGod.org. We'll be right back with Marshall in just a minute. Marshall Siegel. He's a writer at DesiringGod.org. Learn more about him there, DesiringGod.org. We're talking today about isolation, and it's not a good idea. There's lots of spiritual dangers associated with isolation. And um, Marshall, I want to talk a little bit about how important uh, friends are and the sweetness of a friend. Mm. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, Let's make sure we circle back to solitude. Because you mentioned that. Oh, yeah, I did, didn't Right I? before the break. Yeah, very short attention span. And I want to make sure that we, don't, we distinguish between <laughs> isolation and solitude. Okay, yes, let's um, do that. And then we talk about... Let's start there. Okay, let's just yeah. start there. So I think the thing I want to make sure, I think, um, I want to make sure that I distinguish that isolation and solitude are different, and I'm, at least in the way that I'm defining them. And, and the reason I bring that up is that some people could be listening to me talk about isolation and say, well, what about passages in the Bible that seem to commend... Solitude. So I think about Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, do what? Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. So isolated. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Or we, or we see in Jesus, Mark 1, and rising very early in the morning. So he's trying to tell us that it's significant when he's rising. While it was still dark. So just in case you didn't get the very early, while it's still dark. Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So in those two passages, we see that solitude is vital, meaningful time alone with God is vital to the Christian life. I just suspect that most people that are isolated today aren't experiencing solitude. So they, they're on – this is why you see people at, at dinner on their phones – Watch the same thing in a, waiting in a line or, or in the morning when they get up. The first thing they do, what do they do? They get on their phone. So the phone, by the fact that we're carrying this thing around in our pockets all the time, I think it's eliminated solitude for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to put a – just lodge a, a word in here that's the, the practice, the habit of solitude I think is vital for the Christian life. And it's – you can't have a meaningful prayer life without meaningful solitude. So 
Um, I think solitude is really important. We want to protect it and preserve it. What I'm talking about in terms of isolation is more about um, in the rhythms of your time alone with the Lord, are there also healthy rhythms of meaningful conversation with other fellow believers of Jesus? I'm glad we discussed that. Isolation versus solitude. Let's jump back to now the sweetness of a friend. Yeah, so you're quoting the Proverb 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. I just wonder how you would, how many people would, would end that proverb. The sweetness of a friend comes from what? I, I just think relatively few people are going to say earnest counsel. <laughs> you know, it's not what yeah. we think of. We, yeah. we, we think of the kind of fun that we have with yeah. mutual hobbies or interests. Yeah, or, or helping move my couch. Helping move your couch. Yes. But not from giving me a earnest God word exhorting counsel, <laughs> telling me how to live more faithfully for Jesus. It's not how we think about it. But he doesn't say just the goodness of a friendship. He says the sweetness of a friendship. So I don't I, – I think he's just describing reality. It's not like sometimes this is the case and sometimes not. I think he's saying if you're really experiencing friendship, real friendship, the way that God designed it, the sweetness of it is in earnest counsel. Those are the kind of friends you want. Mm. And if you don't have them, you should do everything you can to have one. <laughs> and if you have one, you should do everything you can to keep them. Mm-hmm. And it does. It takes work and it takes commitment. It takes intentionality. Um, so, yeah, I think friends, if you want to grow your friendship, if you, have a good, if you think you have a good friendship, but this sounds weird. I don't, I, haven't, I don't can't remember the last time my friend gave me earnest counsel. Then I would just plead with the Lord, how could we go there together? How could I go to my friend and say, Hey, I want you to speak into my life. I want you to ask me hard questions. I want you to encourage me when I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed about things. I want you to help me see more of Jesus. I think in a lot of Christian friendships, that conversation is going to be received really well, not like you're some alien. What are, right. what are you asking me for? Right. It's just there's, there's, there aren't a lot of people that are willing to go there, and that's, that's what we need. If you want to experience the sweetest friendship, if you want to, if you want to, to have the – to experience what friendship was really made to be, then practice this with one another. That's like diffusing the bomb, though. Do I do I clip the green wire or the yellow wire? Because <laughs> you clip the wrong wire and things are going to blow up. I, mean, I think generally people are interested in hearing what friends say, but they're still holding a certain defensiveness and level of protection because I still have my way of doing things. And you can give me your counsel, but it may not change my mind. I'm curious, though, in your relationships where you've, where you've tasted this, yeah. how, did it, how did it get there? When I got counsel? Yeah. When you, when you experienced the sweetness of a friend and earnest counsel, how did that relationship get to that? Oh, it was fantastic. It was a great uh, boost for the friendship and the relationship. Yeah. You move into a level of trust that you go, oh, this is really nice because the vulnerability produces more trust. Uh, I'm so glad you said that. The exact <laughs> word I had in my head is vulner- okay. vulnerability. Yeah. So I think... If you want to experience earnest counsel from a friend, probably the f- the first step in that is vulnerability. When I'm sitting with you and I share about what I'm struggling with mm-hmm. or a fear that I have, that immediately changes the dynamic of our conversation. And in most cases, in a healthy dynamic, the other person's going to want to go, want to go to that level with you. So you've opened the door and you've gone there, 
and now you're welcoming them there. So I would say if, if you have a relationship and you treasure a relationship, but it doesn't get very deep and you don't have this kind of, this kind of spiritual conversation, I would say that the first way to do that is to start being vulnerable with mm-hmm. that person. You also don't want it to come around and bite you if the person that you're being vulnerable with is not as trustworthy as you hoped. Maybe that you hear some gossip a week later. And I, hey, I heard, Marshall, that you were, and it was, oh, where'd, where'd you hear that? So th- there is risk involved as well. Absolutely. And I didn't talk about gossip in the article, but I think it's really good to mention that, that these relationships are built on trust. Mm-hmm. And so if someone does confide in you, if someone's vulnerable with you and is, is essentially seeking this kind of friendship and this kind of counsel from you, it's really important who you share that information it's with. It's sacred. And how. Isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think gossip isolates as many people, you know, gossip isolates people as much as any other factor, Mm -hmm. I think. I love this passage in Proverbs. I think it's in 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. I don't know if I've fully embraced that one. Do you have any insight on that one, Marshall? It was one of our conversations actually from several months ago that we came in to talk about hard words in relationships. (laughs) You've had a lot of conversations since then. But it is something I've thought a lot about. And again, I think um, it can be hard to begin to go there. But once you build a relationship of trust that goes there, that's willing to say, I think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often say when people ask for counsel, you know, wisdom for everyday decisions that the Bible doesn't speak clearly to, I say, look to those who know you best, love you most, and are willing to tell you when you're wrong. Mm. So who is that? Who do you think of said, yeah, they're willing to tell me when I'm wrong and to be able when you're separated from the moment, because in the moment you think, ah, this person doesn't love me. They're telling me I'm wrong. But if you could, if you're able to look back now with perspective on some of those moments and say, they were right. How much did they love me to come to me and have that difficult conversation? That's hard. How much did they love me to do that? So I would say lean into those relationships like that. So I think if you experience it, if you build trust and go there, I think God says in his word, you're going to experience in a sweetness there that you weren't experiencing when the, when the conversations were at a different level mm-hmm. and not willing to go there. Marshall, what, what was the sweetness verse again? That's Proverbs 27, 9. Do you have that right in front of you? Yeah. Can you read it again? Oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Mm-hmm. Rosie, next time we have Marshall on, don't, don't book him for a half hour. Book him for an hour. I know. I've been trying. I mean, this is crazy because we're done. Right? Yeah. Went too, way too fast, Marshall. I know. My last question is, how about that 10 bucks? <laughs> we'll talk about it after. Okay, good. Marshall Siegel has been my guest, and his article is called Me, Myself, and Lies, The Spiritual Dangers of Isolation. It was uh, dated April 26th, so you can go to desiringgod.org, and you can get the article right there. He also has it on audio as well. And I would assume that you uh, narrate that, don't you? I do. Awesome. All right. We will take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk economics with Dr. Ann Rathbone-Bradley. Be back in a minute. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. I think when it comes to the economy, there are a number of people looking for some kind of lifeboat, something that can give them hope and that will uh, make their lives financially a little bit um, easier. Because with rising inflation, it's definitely a challenge for all of us when we go to the gas pump or the grocery store. And I always uh, am happy to have Dr. Ann Rathbone-Bradley on. She's the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics. She's also an author and professor. And nice to have you on the show today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I just feel like everyone is uh, sort of in this situation now where they're uh, starting to feel a little bit of nervousness, anxiety. I know there's been polls mm-hmm. out that talks about uh, what Americans are saying about inflation. And they say uh, over 80 percent said it's going to be the factor when it comes to, to the midterm elections. I think that's right. I think this is something that is on all of our minds because it affects all of us. And so, of course, your ability to deal with inflation is going to be very much based on your income. And so people at very high incomes, okay, they don't like inflation, but it's not going to sink the ship. Um, And that's not the case for hardworking um, middle-class Americans. It's not the case for working-class Americans who are barely surviving. And so I think we really need to take a humanitarian approach to this topic and say this is not just wonky water cooler Washington, D.C. talk, but this is really a crisis and we have to do something about it because, I mean, parents have to make really tough decisions today about footing the grocery bill and can they continue to send their kids to daycare and can I hire a babysitter so I can go to work? I mean, I'm not even talking about taking vacations. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, right, the ordinary things that we have to do every day. So um, on In my evening class, we meet once a week, and every week I start the class with talking about the gas prices at the local gas station that's about a quarter of a mile from my house, so I pass it all the time. And today I went, and it had gone up 30 cents over the weekend. That's a lot, and that's for regular, not premium. And so just commuting. We still have to get groceries. We still have to go to work. Not everybody can just stop commuting and work from home. And so I really think that this is a problem that every American is feeling. And so, um, you know, it has to do with monetary policy. It has to do with fiscal policy, but we have to get it sorted out. That, that, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, and as an economist, of which you are, I'll make a statement and then you respond as an economist where like uh, we're both in line at a coffee shop and, and I say, well, I look at the May jobs report and they saw that they added 390,000 jobs and unemployment is at 3.6%. So things must be great. Mm-hmm. And you, the economist, would say what? Well, I would say this is a really great point and a great question because a lot of people are having conversations right now asking questions like, are we reliving the 70s? And certainly the inflationary elements of what we're experiencing right now mimic what we saw in the 70s. But this is a unique phenomenon, the jobs phenomenon that we're facing right now that's very different. So in the 1970s, there were very high levels of unemployment. Um, It it was a crisis on both ends. But right now what we're seeing is a different type of labor economy. And so um, we are adding jobs to the economy. I think one of the big differences, of course, is that we are, you know, kind of walking out of COVID and the pandemic. And there was a lot of changes in the job market then 
And I think some of those changes for a lot of workers will become semi-permanent, meaning a lot of people aren't going to go back to the office five days a week if you work in an office. You might have more flexibility. Some people certainly will go back five days a week, but some jobs lend themselves to not having to do that. And so I think what we're seeing is workers are demanding more uh, when it comes to quality of life from their employers, and they're able to get it. And so, you know, I would say, you know, if you look at the economy right now, to answer your original question, I wouldn't look at it and say everything's awesome because it's not. But I would say it's not the situation that we saw in the 1970s where we, we, we talked actively about the misery index. I mean, this is something that only an economist <laughs> or a politician would come up with, right? The misery index, how miserable are we, are we? And that is a measure of inflation and unemployment. And so the misery index today is lower than it was at its peak in the 1970s. But it's, it does mean that we should be concerned about the progress of both the labor market, but also about inflation, which we have already kind of talked about, and other elements of the economy. So it's not all bad news, but we still really have things that need to be corrected. So if I'm in your class and I'm in the back row, because that's probably where I'd sit, so I'm raising my hand and I'm going, Dr. Bradley, Dr. Bradley, uh, so are the gas prices due to the Putin price hike? So this is also a great question, and I would like to take the semester to answer that student's question, because, <laughs> which is not, does not lend itself to be invited back on a radio interview, right? Because <laughs> we don't have 15 weeks to talk about it. But I think the reason I say all of that is because it, it is um, nuanced and complex. So there's a lot of things going on, especially in oil markets. So oil markets are one of the most politicized commodities in the world, and it's been that way for a very long time. And so there's two things that happen when you see economic growth globally, not just in one country, but globally, which we've seen over the past 50 years. And when you see population growth, which we've also seen over the past 50 years, when you have those two things combined, you see a lot more demand for oil and affiliated products. So think about living in a highly developed economy you have lots of outlets in your house, right? And you have lots of appliances in your house. And so as we become richer, we want more stuff. And we want more stuff that helps us, right? So you want air conditioners and you want fans and you want cars and you ditch the bike and you get a car, these types of things. And so there's a pressure on oil as a commodity. So there, those kind of things have been going on for a really long time. But you're asking about, okay, well, what's happening right now? And I think it's a confluence of factors. Certainly, it's about, I think, the politicization of oil generally does not help our situation, especially when you have now what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. And so there have been um, embargoes against Russia. And so that means a shifting around of production and consumption patterns globally as it pertains to oil. And you also have domestic production concerns. And so because oil is so political, it's not as easy to just come up with more supply. This is what we normally see in markets. When there's a demand for something that's growing, you see more people get into that market to produce it. But the more political those markets become, the harder it is to do that. So we've kind of talked, I think, before on the show about the Keystone Pipeline as an example. Regardless mm -hmm. of what your opinion is on that, it is a potential source that's been on again, off again, on again, off again through different political regimes in the United States. And so this sends very confusing signals to investors. 
Um, when it's on, we start investing resources in its production. When it's off, those investors have to go do something else. And it's not like we can flip a switch. So anytime we're talking about demand and supply issues, we're not flipping a switch. And what I mean by that is you can't just say, okay, oil prices are higher today because of what's going on in Ukraine, because of supply side issues because, or supply chain issues because of COVID. All these things are definitely relevant, but none of them can be fixed by flipping a switch. The economy has to work itself out. And so if we're going to drill for more oil, we need that takes a that's a very high investment activity. And we want entrepreneurs at the ready to do that if demand indicates they should. But because of the political nature of this good, it's much harder than it normally would be, I think. And so there's a lot going on, but I think the political nature of this market makes it slower, more cumbersome. And of course, this impacts almost every consumer price because, you know, you may look and say, my groceries are more expensive. Why are eggs so much more expensive or bacon? Well, it's not just the supply and demand of those issues, but we have to transport the eggs Mm -hmm. and the bacon to your grocery store, right? So if oil prices are high, that means your consumer prices are going to be high. And you remember uh, when you would like save up money to go buy a sweater maybe that you really liked and the sweater was like $55 (laughs) and now that's what... the minimum amount you spend putting gas in your car? I mean, yes, it is. I don't even like to look. I mean, <laughs> I have to fill my car up with gas, <laughs> right? but I don't like to look. And it does make me think, do I need to make this trip? Yeah. And if this continues, we're really going to have to make some hard trade-offs. Again, um, this is where we should be worried about non-wealthy people because it's very hard for them to overcome yep. these issues. Absolutely. I, I don't know how people that are on a tight fixed income – that don't have a lot of uh, flex in their budget to show up at the gas station and, and put $65 in their gas tank or $100 when they used to put 34 in. Yes, precisely. And I would I like to add to that comment that it is these, th- these are the very people that were hurt the most under the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's a double whammy. It's a double whammy on your pocketbook. You Many workers were displaced. Uh, many workers had to deal with, now I have to uh, educate my children from home because they couldn't go to school for a while. I'm talking about the earlier days of the pandemic. And that may meant, may have meant you had to hire a babysitter and where were you getting money for that? So that's a, I think it's just a double whammy for this group of people. And we need to make sure these effects are not long lasting. And so recovering is really important. But I think the longer story here is about fiscal and monetary policy that is not sustainable. I mean, we spend a lot. The American government spends a lot. And again, I think you can see this regardless of what political side of the aisle you're on. It's just unsustainable. Social Security, right? These these are bankrupt within a decade is the new announcement. So we have people who are going to expect Social Security payments. They have paid into it their whole life, and it will be bankrupt. We're, that, and that's because we spend too much money, right? So that is not a sustainable set of policies. Okay. And I think you're scaring people right now. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, this is why economists are kind of doom and gloom, um, I guess, but I think there's a way out. So I do think it's possible to fix this. I think that the Fed does not want, nor do American politicians, because as you mentioned, insightfully so at the start of our conversation, this is going to impact midterm elections. And so the political pressure is on. Um, eight, 8.3% inflation is not what Americans are used to. It gives people bad flashbacks to the seventies. They don't want to go through it again and they don't want it to get worse. And so 
I think that it might be an opportunity to change the way we do things. But it means that Americans are going to have to be committed to the belt tightening. And it means that American, we're going to have to hold American politicians, whoever they may be, in the future to, accountable to that. And that's a hard thing, right? It's hard to pull the belt strap of our wallets. It's not easy. Nobody wants to spend less. Um, but it's it's what's needed going forward. Mm-hmm. And haven't they always, from time to time, made uh, remarks about Social Security, that things are in trouble and then things are better and then things are in trouble? Haven't they been saying that for a long time? Yeah, so there's been a long – there's been a lot of worry about this for a long time. And I think that, you know, I mean, again, it's a, it's a confluence of events. So – This has been a long time in the making as part of the story. But again, with all the events that we've just been talking about, um, that exacerbates some of this pressure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the problem. I think when I think about my children who are young, they're going to grow up with a mentality to not expect Social Security because they're going to have to learn how to save at a young age for their own retirement. Mm -hmm. And as people get older, or excuse me, as people live longer, which is occurring, uh, then you're probably going to work longer. So it used to be the case that you could reasonably retire at 60, and if you were going to live till you know 79, then you had that amount of retirement potentially. But now, if we're living to 80, 90, 100 years old, which is you know is happening, and there's reasonable you know beliefs that that will life expectancy will continue to increase, then people are going to be working longer. But what if you can't? What if you're unable to work? I mean, who wants to work when they're 80? If we don't have to. Right. So we don't want to have to be committed to that. And that's going to require a total shift in our mentality about private saving. We're going to have to do it early. We're going to have to teach financial literacy to our kids at very early ages so they're prepared. So So I do think the writing is on the wall, even though, as you say, this has been a problem for a while. But the insolvency is looming. Yeah. Now I'm going to take a break. But I got a ton of questions when we come back. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. We're talking economics, which is what we do with Ann. We'll be back in just a minute. We're talking economics with Dr. Ann Bradley. She's got so many intros, I never know which one to pick. She's the George and Sally Meyer Fellow for Economic Education and Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Fund for American Studies. Among other things, she is a great friend of Faith Radio. She's an author, a professor, and always glad to have her on. So uh, right before we went to break, Ann, I was a little concerned about the Social Security comments. And you said your kids uh, won't probably be receiving Social Security. But will your kids be paying into Social Security and then not receiving it? Well, this is what's happening. And so this is the problem. And I think ultimately that, of course, is not sustainable because people – and this maybe is how you get political change. People will revolt against that if there's mm-hmm. nothing and they've paid into it. So this is the problem. The, idea, the original idea of Social Security, which comes on the heels of the Great Depression, is that you know to have us – for the government to help you create this – goose egg, you know, uh, the safety net for yourself when you are older. And it's a, it, it's perhaps 
an okay idea on paper. Notice how cautious I am there with that. I mean, maybe, okay, maybe. But the problem with all of this, as is the problem with all government policies, and this is not an ideological critique, it's an economic critique, is that it presumes that the people who run the coffers in the federal government will keep their hands off the money. This never happens. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the U.S. or we're talking about other countries. This is just not a good bet. Um, and so I think, you know, we're seeing that come to play. So I don't think it's reasonable if there's truly no money and they're, they're unwilling to make payments, people will be unwilling to be taxed. What does that look like in reality? I think perhaps it's our chance to reform the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and the, things like 401ks are, are new. They're new-ish. Well, we didn't really have this 50 years ago. And so I think people are already making these shifts because private companies also incentivize this through lots of different pay structures. So they'll match up to a certain percent, things like this. So it's already happening. I think it's the expectation of whether there's going to be something there for you. Um, And so when I think about my grandparents and the difference between my grandparents and my parents and then myself, over those three generations, over the 20th and 21st century, there's a big differences in our expectations. Whereas my, my grandparents expected that they would get it. They did get it. Everything was fine. Um, and when it's my turn, I don't expect to get it. So I have to be prepared. Hmm. So when we open up the newspaper or listen to the radio, and almost every day we hear the word inflation, which mm-hmm. is uh, you know a word that I don't know if we all understand very well. I think at some level we do, but... I was looking up inflation today and I thought, well, I wonder if Ann would take us into the classroom just for five minutes because I see that there's demand pull inflation, cost push inflation, and built in inflation. <laughs> and I thought, I thought I knew a little bit about inflation, but it turns out I don't. Right. There's a, there's a lot of different factors. This is a great question. Um, and I think this is the, you know, kind of this helps us bring in the economic way of thinking to uh, help all, all of us hash through what's going on. So it's possible to have prices rise without having systematic inflation. Right now, what we're seeing is it's not that every price in the economy is rising, but a lot of eco- prices in the economies are rising. And so when we're looking at inflation, we're kind of looking at a basket of goods and how those goods change in price over time. So you can look at that over, you know, you could look at it over a week. And really, if you live in a stable economy, not much would change. Um, you could look over it six months. You could look over a year. And so um, when we look at the big inflation numbers in the United States, we're looking at year-to-year inflation typically. And so we're looking at how those prices have changed. Now, as you mentioned, there's a variety of reasons that those prices can change. So when we see one price in an economy change, doesn't mean that there's inflation across the board. It could mean a variety of things. So think of this as an example. Let's say that, you know, um, most of the lemons and limes that come to American markets that are grown in the United States come from Florida. And Florida has a really bad freeze and it damages the uh, lemons and limes. And so it changes the supply. It shorten, you know, it limits the supply. There's a supply shock and you're going to see the prices of lemons and limes go up. And that price tells consumers there's less of that than before. And so the market then tries to adjust to that. Again, we're ne- we never have a, a switch that we're flipping. We can't just magically make more lemons and limes appear. 
But we can recover from that by planting more, by taking different precautions in the growing season, et cetera. So then in the future, the prices go back down. So that's another thing we always want to look for. Are we seeing deflation? Deflation would be the decrease in prices Mm -hmm. over time. Okay, so that's one example. Now, you could have demand push inflation, which is that lots of people start buying something for you. Maybe they learned something. So let's say we read an article in New York Times that came out tomorrow, and it said if you drink four cups of coffee a day, you're going to add a decade to your life. Okay, this is great news if you're already a coffee drinker. But (laughs) if you're not or you don't drink that much, maybe you're going to run out and buy more coffee, and everybody's going to run out and buy more coffee. (laughs) So that's a demand push, which is going to temporarily make the price increase. Why? Because there's only a limited amount of coffee that's been harvested and on the shelves ready for purchase at any given time. So during the pandemic, we saw everybody running around trying to buy hand sanitizer, right, and masks and gloves. That's demand push, right? So there's a variety of different things that can cause us to have periods of inflation or even inflation in a certain industry, a certain type of good. But what we're seeing right now is kind of inflation that's been growing across lots of consumer goods that are in that CPI. That's the Consumer Price Index, and that's what economists use to measure inflation over time. So we're seeing lots of prices go up and they're not going up at the same levels. And that helps us understand too, kind of the different, both supplies of those products and demand of those products. And so, you know, rental cars have had a lot of inflation and it's because of COVID mostly, right? It's because during COVID, nobody was traveling for work or pleasure. And so lots of rental car companies sold off their fleets. And so now there's a lot more travel and there's just not as many rental cars. And so until that catches up, rental car prices are, are, might be higher than bacon prices, right? So for mm-hmm. an economist to even understand why is one price going up more than another, an economist has to go and do some research as to, well, what's going on in that particular market? Regulations can change. Laws can change about what can be bought, what can be sold, how it can be bought and sold. Really quickly, I'll just bring up the infant formula shortage that we're dealing with right now. So there are European infant formulas that can be brought into the United States that in some cases are being brought into the United States to try to deal with the problem. But in most cases, they're not traditionally imported because European formulas don't meet current FDA labeling requirements. So the ingredients are safe. But the FDA does not like how European manufacturers put the instructions or whatever on the label. And so that's, again, if we could change that regulation, overnight you could get more formula imported. So a regulation can lead to inflation or deflation. So anytime we're seeing prices persistently rise over time, which we're seeing, which we, what we've seen over the past year plus, that's where we're really starting to say there's other things going on. It's not just one thing. You know, we had a freeze here or we had the Abbott Labs with the, the, all the formula recalls. Those are instances of bad things that change the supply. What we're seeing is persistent inflation. And so that means that and that's why you see the Fed trying to respond, because they're trying to kind of, quote unquote, cool down the economy so that we can get back to kind of what we consider to be normal, which is about the Fed's goal is about a 2 percent inflation target. So, Anne, when you think about the common sense factor, which I always seem to drift into, I, so they like the formula. The formula is good, but they don't like the way it's labeled. Yes. So that's this what's causing the, the hang up. Yeah. Uh, 
please, if you've got another comment on that, I just find that nuts. It is nuts. It is. You are. I mean, you're a great economist just by saying this. The common sense test is what I'm going to apply to my reasoning on these things, because it's we tend to overregulate these types of things in the United States. And I mean, other countries have problems with this, too, but it is such an easy problem to solve if we would just not pursue those types of regulations that are probably not largely in the interest of public health. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so you could easily solve the problem instead of airlifting formula in. Let's just ease the way we trade and let it come in naturally. Again, supply and demand are always at work, whether we like them or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so FDA regulations of various kinds can tend to make these things very difficult. And in a crisis, what are you supposed to do about it? You need to feed your baby. You know, if you have an infant, you can't just say, I'm going to switch to pureed peas. You can't do that. (laughs) You're really in a pinch. And so we need to not make this difficult for consumers. Yeah. And thank you so much for doing the show. I always love having you on. And my listeners love you, too. So thank you so much. Have a great evening. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Dr. Ann Bradley's been my guest. That's all the show we have for today. Thank you for spending time with me today. If you missed any of this, you can always head to MyFaithRadio.com and check out the podcast. Have a great night. As you lay your head on the pillow, know that God loves you, and I hope you have a great night's sleep, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.